Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. Great to have you with us today, all those, those who are here with us in our gymnasium, those joining us in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide at KFUO.org. We welcome you all. It's an hour earlier today. Everybody looks uh, a little, uh, maybe a little tired, but that's all right. We get, here's another way to look at it. We get to study God's Word an hour earlier uh, today, so that's, that's another way to look at it, right? Good to have you all here. As is our custom, we will take a look today at the scripture lessons for next Sunday. So the ones that are assigned for next Sunday, March 17. For those here in the gymnasium, there are sheets over on the side that have these lessons printed out. And let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we were reminded again today from your word, your son was faithful when, when tested and tempted for us. We pray that you might continue to strengthen us through your word and through the sacrament as we face temptation each and every day, facing the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness for those times when we do give in to temptation and do that which is not pleasing in your sight. Be with us here today also, we pray, as we study your word together. May your Holy Spirit guide and bless that study. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, as I said, we'll take a look at the lessons for next Sunday. And I'm going to throw in the psalm, which is Psalm 4, that we will also take a look at. No extra charge. We're going to look at the psalm also. And uh, I'm doing this for a couple reasons. First of all, the lessons are a bit short, uh, a bit on the brief side for next Sunday, uh, and I'm thinking of preaching on the psalm also, so I thought I would throw that in. Um, the lessons, the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson are very much related, as is usually the case. In the Old Testament lesson, we're going to see Jeremiah uh, facing, actually, uh, his own death as a result of proclaiming God's Word. He is, is uh, facing grave danger. And then in the Gospel lesson, we have Jesus talking about Jerusalem and how Jerusalem kills the prophets. And he makes a prediction of his own uh, coming death in Jerusalem. So that's kind of the tie together. And uh, we have Psalm 4, which relates a little bit to this as well, because in Psalm 4, we don't know the exact setting, but it seems pretty likely that David writes this psalm as he is facing opposition from his own son, Absalom. Remember that story, we'll rehearse that story for you as well. So that's kind of the 30,000 foot level look at the lessons for next Sunday. And let's get into this now. I wanna start with Psalm 4 before we get into the Old Testament lesson. And as I said, this is a Psalm of David. And it, uh, when you read it in the, in the Bible, it will also have at the top there, uh, labeled to the choir master uh, and it also says with stringed instruments and we know the Psalms were used uh, in worship by God's people in much of the same way we use hymns today uh, some of them set to music there were choir masters uh, which pretty much uh, sounds like it, it, it functions and some would be in charge of the vocal music Others would be in charge of the instrumental music, 
it seems that this choir master and this particular psalm were to be done with a stringed instrument. And there were various uh, stringed instruments that uh, were used throughout the Old Testament, especially we get into the New Testament as well. Uh, and we have many more chords today. But just to point that out, when you read the psalm itself in the Bible, you'll notice that. It's, it's mentioned right at the top. Now, this Psalm 4, Psalm 3, right before it, is definitely a psalm that is written uh, by David as he is being pursued or is actually facing uh, grave danger from his own son, Absalom. Now, just to rehearse that story for a moment, you probably remember the details that uh, Absalom who uh, is noted in the scriptures as being a, apparently a very good-looking man uh, with long, flowing hair. Remember, one, once a year he would cut his hair and weigh it. I don't know what in the world you weigh your hair for after you cut it, but uh, weighed uh, like five pounds. So, I mean, he, he was a very uh, good-looking guy, I guess. He kind of reminds he probably would have been very photogenic, would be a great politician today. And, uh, and he, remember, turned... Uh, the people against David. He would sit in the city gate area where people would come to have their cases decided and the judge would render a verdict there and and he said you know he would tell the people oh if only I were king you know this this would turn out much better for you and he would render judgments that were favorable for the people and little by little he turned the people against his own father David to the point where David is warned, he's going to come and, and take over. You better flee for your own safety. Imagine that from your, from your own son. So David flees, and of course the, the military men are forced to decide, are they going to stick with David, or are they going to join up with Absalom? And so there's this big, uh, make a long story short, they're out in the wilderness, there's this huge battle. And remember what happened, Absalom, he's riding on a, on a donkey, we think, and gets this long, beautiful hair uh, caught in a tree and is kind of hanging there, literally hanging there uh, by his hair. And remember, Joab then uh, actually uh, puts Absalom, actually threw uh, three sort of like javelins uh, into him, into his chest, and then a couple other guys come along and finish him off and bury him. And David is greatly grieved by this. He even said to the military men before they went into battle, do not harm Absalom. And uh, at any rate, so that's, that's again, that's a real quick sketch view. You can see this uh, actually in uh, a little bit earlier in 2 Samuel, I believe, is, is uh, where this is. And let's take a look now at the psalm. If we divide Psalm 4 up, it can really be divided into different sections here. Verses 1 through 3 is the Lord hears when David calls. So that's kind of the idea there. The Lord hears when he calls or answers prayer. Uh, verses 4 to 5, the theme there is trust in the Lord, and we'll see that. Verses 6 and 7, the next section, talk about joy from the Lord. And then verse 8 talks about peace from the Lord. Okay? So let's read through this, and I'll kind of show you, we'll show how we go through this. Uh, starting at verse 1 there. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. See how the, that verse begins and ends with the same thing. The idea of 
answering me when I call or hearing my prayer. And notice how David addresses God, O God of my righteousness. Now, would David have been righteous in and of himself? No. Yeah, good Lutherans, we always shake our head no. Our righteousness does not come from ourselves, does it? It comes from outside of us and is given to us. And David, of course, is no exception to that. And, of course, we know from other events in his life, uh, notably with Bathsheba and the incredibly you know, string of sins that he commits uh, there, he is, he is uh, righteous not in and of himself, but, again, like, us, like each of us, our righteousness is given to us. It is Christ's righteousness that we have. It comes to us in and through our baptism and is laid on us, you might say, almost like a garment that is laid on us. Okay? And now, why do you think, or why is it comforting? He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. So if he's in distress now, why do you think he's saying, you have given me relief in the past when I was in distress? What's he kind of indicating there, in other words? God's going to probably do the same thing again, right? He's asking God, to do, you've done this in the past for me. Do it again for me, is what it's going to end up being. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, Be anxious in nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he, he adds there that phrase, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And you know, so often when we're praying for something, uh, we, we get right to the thing that we need right away. You know, that's our basically a one-sentence prayer. But Paul uh, there encourages with thanksgiving, and it's sort of the same idea, isn't it? That when you think back about all that you have to be thankful for first, and you remember... It's the same gracious God who's given me all these blessings, and I'm thanking him for these things. You can't help but call to your mind that it's the same God who has blessed me in so many ways that I'm praying to now when it comes to whatever we're praying about. So it's kind of the same thing here. David recounts how God has helped him in the past, has delivered him when he was in distress in the past, and he's going to be with him now. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So the two uh, side by side. Oh, uh, verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now, is this David? Is David talking about his honor or God's honor here? And the answer probably is yes. <laughs> Because, in effect, David's honor and God's honor are going together here. They are kind of the same thing, but there's a lot written. Is, he, is this God speaking here about his own honor? Is this David speaking about his honor? Probably one and the same. And you see here, you can almost sense here, can't you, when he says uh, that they listen to vain words and seek after lies, you can almost sense... The, the, the way Absalom is at work here, turning people away from David and turning them toward himself and his own selfish gain with vain words and lies, uh, namely about David. Okay? So how long will my honor be turned in shame? 
how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And that's, of course, addressed to those who are in opposition to him and to God. Verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Uh, let, me, let me just back up a second here. I forgot to mention. See that word selah out at the end of verse uh, 2? S-E-L-A-H? We don't know what that is. <laughs> it's, in, it's in a lot of the Psalms. We think it is a marker for the, the music that, that is actually played. Uh, but we don't have a translation of that. You'll see it in a bunch of the Psalms that will be out there at the end of a verse as sort of a marker. Um, I don't know what we would have to compare that to today. We, we mark our stanzas, I guess, with, with different uh, numbers, but that might be the closest thing. I just wanted to mention that before somebody asked. Now, verse 3, though, notice here, isn't that comforting? Notice there, God has set apart the godly for himself. The idea of God separating or calling you out, and it, notice, is it for you? It's for whom? For himself, right? God has called you apart for himself, okay? And he says there, the Lord hears, or I'm sorry, uh, called him out for himself, the Lord hears when I call to him. So there again, we've got the idea of the prayer, and this ends that first section that I was talking about that talks about God answering when we call, okay? Now, verses 4 and 5, we talk about putting trust in the Lord. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And there's that word selah again. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Okay? So notice there, be angry. The word also can be tremble. And ponder in your own hearts on your beds. The idea here is, is you can be angry, but not what? Not let that anger result in sin, in sinful actions, in words, in deeds. And instead, he says there, ponder on your bed. In other words, kind of, uh, instead of acting out or striking out, think about it, meditate on it. And that's easier said than done, isn't it? Our first inclination is to act out right away and to, you know, seek vengeance when we're angry with someone and what they've done for us. Offer right sacrifices, and then here's the line, Put your trust in the Lord. And that pretty much says it all. David is going to have to do this himself. If he is being pursued by Absalom and is facing death, he has to do this himself. Put his trust not in himself, but in the Lord. Uh, verse 6, uh, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Can't you hear in the background again all these complainers that are turned against David by Absalom? Who will say, uh, many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That's kind of a strange uh, sentence there. Lift up the light of your face upon us. Now, in the benediction, the one benediction, the, it's called the Aaronic, or the Aaron benediction that we have at the end of the church service, we say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor or lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
And this is kind of a, a turning back to that. By the way, that's called the Aaronic benediction because Aaron spoke that to God's people. Uh, and it is back uh, in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. And we retain that benediction or that good word at the end of our services, one of the two that we use at the end of our services on Sundays. So the idea of when, God let, when God's face shines on you, does that sound good? Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, he is saying here, uh, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And it's another way of saying, bless us. You know, when, when God's face lights up toward you, the idea is, he is blessing you. Okay? Then verse uh, 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So he makes a comparison here to the secular, non-believing, uh, you know, uh, pagans, and says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. So even when they've got all that they could ever imagine, I have more joy in my heart. Let me just ask you, do you think, think non-Christians, do they think of Christians as joy the first thing they think of when they think of Christians? Probably not, unfortunately. It really, when you stop and think about it, we really should have a joy, right? I mean, when you stop and think about it, all that we have been given, the weight that's been lifted from our shoulders by the fact that our sins are forgiven, we have everlasting life, but sometimes we walk around and don't have a whole lot of joy, at least, at least uh, not evident to people, right? And so... And I know, we're, I know we're in the season of Lent here when we're not supposed to be joyous, but uh, we still uh, have the blessings that God has granted to us even beyond eternal life. And it, it, it is a life of joy that we can live now, serving God and serving one another. And so he says here, you, ha you have put more joy in my heart. And think about again, if he is fleeing right now, fleeing Absalom, even in the midst of this, he can think about the joy that God has put in his heart. And then verse 8, peace. In peace I both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And again, think of the irony there. If he is being pursued by Absalom, he talks about the peace that God gives him and how he can go to bed at night and lie down and, and um, with peace in his heart. You alone make me dwell in safety. So he's not thinking about his own skills here as a warrior. It's God who lets him dwell in safety. And you know, when you think about that, uh, in terms of lying down in sleep, there's a couple ways you can think about that. First of all, every night, right? Uh, we, we go to bed at, and sleep in peace, knowing that we are in the Lord's care and blessing and there's also a way in which when we die right that we are again falling we sometimes use that expression falling asleep in the Lord or death itself and we have that sense of peace that only God can give okay so that's Psalm 8 and that is going to be the Psalm for next Sunday and again uh, talking about trusting in the Lord and having joy and peace as a result Okay? And, and safety. All right, so any questions or any comments on this? This is a, a really kind of a neat song. All right.
Let's go to the Old Testament lesson for next week, and this is Jeremiah. And here we're going to find out uh, Jeremiah is going to be actually facing death because he dared to proclaim God's word. Okay? <laughs> so let's go on. I'm starting in verse 8. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and to all the people, saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. All right, let's go back and take a look at this. Does it seem rather surprising to you that a prophet of God would be facing death simply for proclaiming God's word? I mean, doesn't that sound, isn't that ironic? And that it happened in Jerusalem of all places. You would think that the people of God, especially in Jerusalem, would be seeking God's word and wanting to hear God's word. But instead, they were wanting to hear what they wanted to hear. And even though it was the word of God that, that Jeremiah, and we could say Isaiah and the other prophets as well, were proclaiming, it was not what they wanted to hear because Jeremiah is predicting the downfall, the demise of Jerusalem and of God's people that they are going to be taken captive and taken away and that is not what they wanted to hear. And so they are going to kill him because he spoke against God's people and against the city of Jerusalem and against the house, which is the, the uh, temple at that time. And uh, so they, the uh, kings, especially in the Old Testament, would have these paid prophets who were on the, literally on the payroll, and they would tell the king exactly what he wanted to hear, which of course was, everything's great, things are going along so well. Uh, you know, God is with you. You can just tell by how great things are going. Don't worry about a thing. You know, everything's, everything's rosy. And then along comes a prophet like Jeremiah or Isaiah with a dramatically different message. And the, even the religious leaders now are wanting to put him to death because it's not what they wanted to hear. So let's, let's go uh, kind of verse by verse here. Verse 8, uh, notice there... 
who had commanded Jeremiah to preach these things or say these things? It's not that he just made this up himself. The Lord had commanded him. See that in verse 8? And to speak to all the people, not just to some, but to all the people. So he's merely doing what he as a prophet was supposed to do. And we won't look at it now, but way back in, in Jeremiah 1, uh, verses, <clears throat> verses 9 and 10, it says there, when God calls him, it says, I will put my words on your lips. And so Jeremiah is simply doing what God has asked him to do here. Then, the, the, notice here again, the priests and the prophets, these would have been the professional prophets, of course, these paid guys on the, on the, on the dole, and all the people, notice they seized him. So they took him physically. This was not just to come with us. They actually took him physically, saying, you shall die. Now, uh, <clears throat> you know, this is, a, this is a serious situation. And uh, they take him, and notice there, what's the reason? That you have prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, this house shall be like Shiloh. Now, Shiloh, if... Um, we go back to 1 Samuel 4. Shiloh was a place where the Ark of the Covenant was taken from, was taken away from God's people. And by the time of Jeremiah, it was actually probably a pretty desolate place. So he, has, he is saying Jerusalem here, the head, the capital, the, the religious center is going to be like Shiloh. It's going to be desolate. There's going to be nothing, nothing left of it there. And the city will be desolate without inhabitants. And all the people gathered around the house of the Lord. Now, verse uh, 10, uh, the guys come up there, the, the religious leaders come up, and they take their place in the entry of the new gate to the house of the Lord. And again, this idea of the gate was where things were decided, cases were decided. Okay? So they're getting ready to have a trial here, basically, and Jeremiah is facing death simply because he proclaims God's word. So the priests, uh, verse 11, the priests and the prophets, these again would be the professional prophets, said to the official, this man deserves the sentence of death. Why? Because he prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own words. That would be treasonous, they thought, prophesying against this city and against God's people. And again, it was not what they wanted to hear. Now, let me stop here for a moment. Do we, is there a danger today uh, even in the Christian church, that we only want to hear what we want to hear at times, right? Uh, especially when it comes to uh, a, a pastor who proclaims or preaches. We, we say as Lutherans, we have two main teachings that we should hear in a sermon. One of them is the gospel, of course, and that should predominate in any sermon. But what's the other side? The other teaching is the law. Yeah, very good. And... The law is that which doesn't make us feel good, or it shouldn't anyway. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the, the, main, the main function of the law is that it, number one, convicts us of our sin. We call that the, the mirror use of the law, right? It shows us our sin. And, you know, it is not a pleasant thing for a pastor to preach the law to people. It's much easier just to preach oh, good old news, and, and everybody's happy and smiling. But, and leaves that way, but again, we preach both law and gospel. And there are some times where people do object to the preaching of the law, especially if it strikes pretty close to home in some cases, right? 
And you get the same thing here. We have to be careful uh, as pastors and as congregations uh, that, that we don't slip into this, because it's very easy to slip into this, that we only hear what we want to hear, and we have no need to amend our sinful life. Everything is just fine, and we go on like this. And, you know, again, it's, it's a danger that we can fall into if we're not careful, okay? And we can see this happening right here. They just did not want to hear anything against themselves. They wanted to believe that everything was just fine. And it is not only when you stop and think about it, it's not only when it comes to a Christian congregation, but even a church body and church, national church bodies today, that there are certain things that the Word of God speaks very clearly about, and yet there are some church bodies who have taken stances today that would indicate that this is just fine. And uh, especially when we uh, speak of matters of sexuality and other, other areas of lifestyle, that it's very uh, tempting for a, a, even a national church body to say, well, that's really okay or that's really fine. And the people who do speak out against it and not accepting it as God-pleasing are sometimes thought of as, as Jeremiah's, that how dare they say this? How dare they speak about this? So both as congregations and as national church bodies or denominations, uh, we have to be careful that we're not just telling people what they want to hear, but, but first and foremost, what has God commanded us to say? And that's what should guide us. Okay. So verse 12, notice what Jeremiah in his defense here, his main defense is going to be, God's the one who told me to say this. This is not me speaking. This is from God. So verse 12, then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy. I, notice here, against this house and this city. So I am prophesying against this house and this city because God's the one who sent me to do it. Now, And he calls on them in verse 13 to repent. Mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And notice what will happen. The Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. So if you repent, God will relent from the judgment that is going to come. And, of course, they're not about to repent. Verse 14, but as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. So what's Jeremiah, in effect, saying here? When it comes to my own personal well-being and safety... Just do what you want, you know. It's, it's almost like, when you stop and think about it, it's almost like David, right? Uh, again, that confidence that he has in the Lord. Uh, almost like David in Psalm 4 that we looked at. So do with me whatever you want. I'm in your hands. So he's resigned to the fact that he might die here. He could actually be killed simply for proclaiming God's word. And then, if you do, you'll have innocent blood on yourselves, upon the city, inhabitants, for the truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Okay? Uh, kind of in interesting that they would have innocent blood on themselves and on the inhabitants of the city. Jeremiah, in saying this and in actually doing this, is going to be speaking, uh, think about the connection with Christ and the innocent blood that is going to be shed, well, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem when he is, is executed. Again, totally innocent totally trumped up charges against him. He is going to be killed 
for preaching the word of God, just as Jeremiah is facing death here for preaching the word of God. Okay? So that's the, that's the connection between the two. Now, we won't leave you hanging here as to what actually happens if the lesson would have continued uh, they actually, in Jeremiah, in the rest of, of 26, chapter 26, they actually have this trial. And he is saved, his life is saved by a precedent that they found. And that's namely that the prophet Micah proclaimed uh, or prophesied against the city and didn't get killed. So they said, okay, well, there's a precedent. I guess we'll spare his life because Micah preached against the city and we didn't kill him. So I guess we'll let Jeremiah live. That's, that's, that's how he escapes. And again, it's not that they're repenting or they're saying, you know, he was really right and the Lord really is speaking through and we, we better repent and we better not kill him. No, it's just that they, somebody, somebody had a good attorney, I guess, and found a precedent in, in Micah. One of the few times, by the way, that one prophet is mentioned in the, in the book of another prophet, in this case Micah, who was a, a somewhat contemporary uh, a little bit earlier, though, had, had prophesied against that city, and we didn't kill him, so I guess we'll, I guess we'll let Jeremiah live. Okay? So that's, that's how they get out of it. Any comments or questions on this one, on the uh, Jeremiah text, the Old Testament lesson? Yes? Jen? It's interesting that they think that, I don't know, do they yeah, so the question is, do they think that someone who is prophesying is actually able to bring about the prophecy? This is, brings up the old, uh, remember the old adage, don't shoot the messenger or don't kill the messenger? And Jeremiah is kind of, that's his point, that I am not, I am simply speaking what the Lord has commanded me to say. Now, as to what they thought, I think they just wanted to get rid of him because they just didn't want to hear this stuff anymore. And if they can get rid of him, they don't, they don't have to you know, be bothered by all this, this naysaying about, about us and about the city and about the temple and all that. They just didn't want to hear that anymore. But yeah, it, it, sometimes it's, it's probably hard for them to separate the message from the messenger. And in this case, and, and of course, with Christ, we see that also, right? And, and they cannot separate that, even though he comes with words of forgiveness and redemption, uh, but his claim to, to be from God and to be God, they didn't, they didn't want to hear that at all. But a good point. Any others? Comments? Questions on this? Yes. The, yeah, the question was, did their conscience have something to do with this? You've got to wonder, you know, uh, because, again, the Word of God has its power to work in, in the hearts of people, even if they're not, you know, God's, remember, God says, my word will not return to me void, but will accomplish that for which I sent it. And that Word of God in this case, was a word of convicting them. And so you, it would be interesting to see, we don't have it recorded in that much detail, whether, there were, whether anyone was speaking up on behalf of Jeremiah, or it's, it appears that they just found this precedent with Micah and decide they're going to let him off the hook. But it'd be interesting to see if anybody repented, truly repented, and turned to the Lord. And isn't it kind of sad that they were so far gone that they didn't even know they were gone, you know? It's, it's like the, um, what's that old uh, analogy of the frog in the, in the tub of water and, he doesn't, and the heat is below and it just gradually gets warmer and warmer and warmer and the frog doesn't realize that 
he's going to be cooked pretty soon, right? And uh, this is what, you know, can happen that over time and over decades, uh, people get so far gone and they're used to having everybody tell them that this is fine now, call, th calling evil good and good evil, uh, that they just get accustomed to this is the way it is and they don't realize how far gone they are. And then God sends them a prophet like Jeremiah to try and bring them back to reality and all they want to do is kill him. So it's, it's pretty sad commentary uh, on God's people at that time. And again, we have to, we, we can't, we can't uh, you know, act like this can't happen to us. We have to be always vigilant, always what does the Word of God say, and go with that. Not, not what culture, society, or anybody else is telling us is okay. Our one standard is the Word of God. Okay? All right, good. Anything else? All right, let's go on to the gospel lesson. I'm going to leapfrog over uh, the epistle lesson here because the gospel lesson is directly related. And here it's not Jeremiah, but it is Jesus. And we see here, let's just read through. It's only a few verses. We'll read through it and then go back. Uh, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a pretty harsh saying uh, by Jesus. So, in this section of Luke now, I think I mentioned this another time here, the, the, the hinge verse in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, is Luke 9, verse 51, where we read that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. It's almost like you're, you're uh, it, some, one translation, maybe the King, King James has, uh, set his face like flint or something like that. It's, it's the idea of uh, resolute, he's going to Jerusalem. That's 951. And from 951 on, you've got this travel narrative where he is on his way to Jerusalem. Some of this material is only in Luke that we have as he travels now to Jerusalem, and he's not going there just for a visit. He knows he's going there to die. And along the way, uh, we, we see here some of the Pharisees uh, come to him and say to him, here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, the Pharisees in general, were they kind of friendly toward Jesus, sort of uh, on his side, uh, his, his companions, his, his buddies? No, no, just the opposite. Pharisees, by the way, were lay people, uh, um, and, and we're, not, uh, we're not clerics or we're not clergy. They were lay people who uh, had a tremendous, tremendous focus on the keeping of the law. And they come to Jesus. Now, why do you think they may, they may say to him uh, what they did? Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Why do you think they may, may say that? To him. Yeah, 
They, they really just want to get rid of him. It's kind of like the Jeremiah thing, you know, just get, have this guy move on. We don't want to hear this stuff anymore. And so uh, that's one theory, that they just wanted him to move on and get out of here and be on your way. And, of course, he is. He's going to be going to Jerusalem. He is on the way to Jerusalem, but they wanted him gone. That's one theory. There is another theory, and I frankly don't buy this one, but I'll just say it anyway. because There's some that think that some of the Pharisees, especially away from Jerusalem, were more sympathetic to Jesus. And I'm, I frankly, I'm not so keen on that. Uh, I think the Pharisees were pretty united but, uh, in, in their opposition to him. But it, it may well be that they just want him to move along. Now, this Herod that they're talking about, is Herod Antipas, who is the, the, the leader, the, the ruler, we might say, of Galilee and another area right next to Galilee, Perea. And this is the same Herod who, remember, uh, has John the Baptist. Um, he gets himself painted into a corner, remember, and has John the Baptist beheaded. And so it's this same Herod now, and they're saying to Jesus, Herod, and he's already done this. John the Baptist has already been beheaded. Uh, head's already been bought, brought uh, to uh, Herodias on a platter. And now they're saying, you better get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. Now, that may well be true. Uh, Herod may have decided that Jesus is too much of a threat. And with all these miracles and signs and wonders that he's doing, but it's kind of interesting the other place we hear about this Herod is when Jesus is arrested. And remember, he goes uh, first to uh, Pilate. Uh, well, first he goes to Annas, then Caiaphas, but in terms of uh, in the Sanhedrin. But in terms of Roman rulers, first he goes to Pilate. And then remember, Pilate hears that Herod is in town and sends Jesus off to this same Herod, thinking, hey, I can, I can pass the buck here. And it's interesting because... In that instance, we're told that Herod was interested in Jesus and wanted to see him perform some wonders or some miracles. In other words, he was almost wanting entertainment from Jesus, right? So this doesn't quite match, you know, what we, what we hear later. So that's why, again, it may well be that these Pharisees are just trying to trick Jesus. They just want him out of here. And Herod did kill John the Baptist. So they're thinking he'll, he'll believe this. This is a believable uh, kind of conspiracy here, okay? Now, uh, does, Jesus, does Jesus bow to their plan? Okay, I better, I better move along. No. Look at the defiance in what he says back. Go tell that fox. Now, why would he call him a fox? Kind of, what, would he th what, what do we think of a fox as, as being? Sort of... Sly, cunning, you know, and uh, he certainly was that. Uh, I will just tell you that there is another translation for that uh, word uh, that is more of a, uh, <clears throat> like a hyena or a scav scavenging, scavenging animal and sort of not a you know, kind of a worthless sort of animal. Now, what Jesus meant here, we don't know, but most translations will have fox here and the idea of being sort of cunning and uh, deceptive or some, you know, something along those lines. We use the word in the same way uh, today. It's a metaphor, obviously, uh, for whatever he is intending to communicate here. So, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. This is his ministry, basically, that he's talking about here. 
And the third day I finish my course. Now, the third day, there's a lot written on this also. We don't think, and there are some, I guess there's some who do, but we don't think he's only three days away from Jerusalem here. In other words, that he's going to go on the third day. And that's just because of how many dinners he eats between now and there. Uh, unless he ate, uh, you know, uh, early and often, uh, it's probably not that he's only three days away from Jerusalem. Granted, that's the way it may sound. But we think also is just his determination that on the third day I finish my course or I reach my goal. Well, what happened on the third day, very notably? His, his rising from the dead, right? On the third day. And that's where that phrase is usually used, especially in the Gospel of Luke. And so he's basically saying here, go and tell Herod, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast out demons, I'm going to heal people, heal people, and on the third day I'll finish my course. Or he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. It's a rather a hard, a hard thing to interpret. But in other words, he is not going to bow. Now, one thing that's kind of beneath the surface here, by, by saying to these Pharisees, go and tell Herod this, what is he kind of indicating about the relationship between these Pharisees and Herod? Probably working, working somewhat to the same, uh, same means, right? That they're kind of in league together. They had a common enemy in Jesus. And there's that old expression that what uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend or something like that, right? And uh, they're working together here almost. Go and tell him. And uh, so, it, you know, if, if you think you're helping me uh, by, by passing on a message from Herod, go back and tell him this. And so he's not going to bow to anything. But he know, watch how he knows what's going to happen here. Nevertheless, I must go. Uh, the original language means, uh, says there, it is necessary. I must. There's a divine necessity here. He is doing what the Father is, is uh, telling him or the Father's will here that he must go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following. And notice this, uh, what sounds like sarcasm here probably is, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So what's the, what's the sort of sarcasm here? I can't die out here because I'm not in Jerusalem. That's where all the prophets are killed. You know, it, it, it can't happen out here. It's got to happen in Jerusalem. And... Uh, so they had a reputation, and we, uh, there are some early church history uh, references to Isaiah actually being killed uh, in that territory. So again, it, it was well known that they would kill the prophets. Uh, in the New Testament, by the way, Book of Acts, who's going to be executed uh, as, as a, I guess you could say a prophet in Jerusalem? Stephen, right? Acts 7. And that's the first time we get, catch a glimpse of uh, Paul or Saul at that point. He's the, the coat check guy uh, for that stoning of Stephen to death, right? And that happens again in Jerusalem. All right? So, uh, so again, in so many, so many instances, so many times, Jesus predicts exactly what's going to happen and where it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Uh, this is not that he was caught off guard or somehow, you know, circumstances got away from him. Or, you know, you hear some people say, he predicts exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And he still goes ahead. He goes on. Okay? Now, look at the lament in, in um, verse 34. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. There's the image there of a, of a mother hen protecting her young under her wings. And there's a, in the Psalm 91 that we here at St. Paul's have uh, today as our Old Testament reading, you get the same sort of thing. Uh, take a look if, you haven't, uh, if you're going to uh, late service today. Take a look at that psalm, and it, it mentions the same, same sort of thing, the protection under the wings. And so there's a lament here. And a couple of things, first of all, does Jesus obviously want all people to be saved, to repent and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Absolutely. And that's why we do not believe, it's one of the reasons we don't believe, in a so-called double predestination, that God has predestined some people to be condemned or to be damned. Another thing we notice here, Jesus wants this to happen, but notice they would not. And so we also believe that when God works through means, such as the Word of God, he can be resisted. He can be rejected. We do not believe, as the Reformed do, in what's called an irresistible grace. That God, you know, is predestined and you cannot resist it. Oh, yes, you can. And here's an example of it. Jesus is right there. They've got him face to face. And they would not. Okay? So that, right in that, we see a couple things, right? Right in that. Now, look at verse 35. Whose house is it? Behold, not God's house anymore, is it? Your house is forsaken or is desolate, is abandoned by God. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a quote. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a quote from Psalm 118. And the people of Jerusalem were supposed to say that to travelers when they would come to Jerusalem for a festival, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, when would they say that about Jesus? Palm Sunday. He's going to be coming, and they're going to say, Hosanna. They're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's, you might say, the first fulfillment of that. But we think Jesus is also referring to an ultimate fulfillment of that on the day of his second coming, right? when his people will say again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this prediction that Jesus makes here about their house being desolate and being forsaken, unfortunately will come true in 70 AD when God's people uh, here in Jerusalem, well, I shouldn't say God's people, when the people of Jerusalem will revolt and the Romans will have had enough and uh, a Roman general named Titus will come and will completely destroy the city. It is brutal, brutal. You read the accounts of it. And uh, that's where some of you <clears throat> uh, may know of, uh, maybe you've seen the movie Masada, which is, Masada is a fortress down in the southern part of, uh, of the Promised Land. Some of you may have been there. And uh, that, that was sacked three years later in 73 AD, and that was it. After that, uh, the Romans came and actually um, uh, that, that pretty much was over after that. Uh, they, the whole territory was gone. Okay? 
So this is going to come true. And notice they bring it on themselves by their lack of repentance and by their actually killing the prophets of God, culminating in the killing of Jesus. But let's not forget the fact that in the killing of Jesus, whose purpose is actually still being done? The Father's purpose is still being done, even in what looked like a great injustice and a great crime, which it was, and it was an injustice. God is at work even in this to carry out his plan of burning salvation by grace to all people, right? So it's kind of interesting. So that's the tie now between the Old Testament and the gospel lesson. Jeremiah preaches the word of God. He's almost killed. Jesus preaches the word of God. He is going to be killed. Okay? And that's coming up. He even predicts it. All right. Any questions on that before we, we'll take just a few minutes to look at the epistle lesson? Huh? Can that be a, a, a reason for the Pharisees wanting to get rid of Jesus? Because weren't, weren't they always afraid that there was a lot of trouble with the Romans? Yes. Uh, the question was that isn't that another reason that they would have wanted to do away with Jesus, the Pharisees speaking here, because they're afraid of the Romans coming and, and brutalizing the people. Yes. I think that's a good point that, you know, they, they were always wanting to make sure, and the Romans actually also wanted to make sure that there was peace and harmony, didn't want any trouble. And here's this troublemaker out here continuing to stir up the people. And I think, though, that probably the primary reason, you know, the Pharisees, especially on the Sabbath laws, were just sticklers on these things. And... And when they saw Jesus not obeying what they thought, obeying, according to their rules, obeying the Sabbath and healing people on the Sabbath, his disciples picking the grain on the Sabbath day, and then he sometimes would almost set them up. You know, they, they, would, they would bring somebody who's lame to him on the Sabbath, and it, it, I think it's in Luke, he looks around at them and knows what they're thinking. Now, is he going to heal them on the Sabbath day or not? And... To me, that was the, I think there's an element definitely in what you're saying, that they didn't want the Romans to come and they wanted to keep order, they wanted to get rid of this guy. But boy, they really thought that Jesus was actually causing people to go away from God and not, not uh, you know, you might say, be obedient to the, to the rules of God. And many of those rules were man-made rules that they had made up, regulations they had made on top of the law. Okay? All right, anything else before we move on real quickly through the epistle? We've got a couple minutes here. Um, the epistle is a great section here from Philippians. Uh, Philippi was a um, territorial city in the Roman Empire, and it's where many military men went to retire. And if you were a citizen in Philippi, guess what citizenship you also had by the fact that you were a citizen of Philippi? You had... Roman citizenship, which was a real perk. And you got certain uh, privileges, namely the right to a trial and face your accusers. Paul exercises this in the book of Acts. And so watch how Paul uses this here. Uh, starting, we're at uh, Philippians 3, 17 through 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, 
Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now watch this in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Okay? So, real quickly, um, does that sound to you a little conceited in verse 17, and uh, where Paul says, join in imitating me? Does that sound a little conceited to you? What do you think? Some of you, some of you are saying yes, some are saying no. But what he's basically doing there, I, I guess you can maybe take it that way, but he's just saying, follow my example. You know, if you have questions, follow my example and those around us, the example you have seen in us. So as they're facing questions about do they have to keep the laws, the Jewish laws, or if they're facing questions on the other side about pagans around them, and, you know, we, we forget that these are all new Christians. These are all converts. We don't have generations-long Christians here. And they're trying to figure out how to live as a Christian. Paul says, follow our example. So basically, that's, that's the message of the first couple of verses here. Now, verse 18, does this not sound rather uh, contemporary? <laughs> um, uh, verse 18, many are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Uh, we could talk a long time about how that's a pretty accurate, could be an accurate description of some, at least, in our world today, right? Uh, that their, their uh, minds are set or are established simply on earthly things and what we see around us. Contrast, Paul says, where is our citizenship? It is heaven, right? So to all these Roman citizens who are proud of being Roman citizens, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. We await a savior from there, of course, talking about the second coming now of Christ. He's gonna transform or change the form of our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So no longer corrupted by sin, it's incorruptible. It's immortal like his, no longer able to die. So sin and death are done away with in terms of our bodies. And he's going to subject all things to himself. And we are now out of time, I see. But at any rate, uh, that's a great uh, epistle lesson for next week. And uh, let me just throw in a commercial for uh, as we close here. For any who are in the St. Louis area, if you are looking for midweek Lenten services here at St. Paul's, we would invite you to join us at either 11 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 6.30 in the evening, and we have a dinner, uh, just a free will offering, every Wednesday, 5.30 to 6.30. So we invite you to join us if you're without a church home here in the St. Louis area. With that then, let's close with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.